Welcome to the F Less Traveled, tracing feminist pathways with Amelia and Sabrina. We're making space for stories and feminist journeys, inviting guests to share three books, two songs, and one object. Things that have been their feminist friends along the road. Hi all, and welcome to today's episode, where we'll be chatting with Stella Dadzi. Stella is a feminist writer, historian, and education activist, best known for her co-authorship of The Heart of the Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain, which won the 1985 Martin Luther King Award for Literature, and was republished by Verso in 2018 as a feminist classic. It was also one of Amelia's feminist companions in episode six. Stella has also written numerous publications and resources aimed at promoting good practice with black learners and other minorities, including resources to decolonize and diversify the UK national curriculum in schools and colleges. She is a founder member of OWAD, Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent, a national umbrella group for black women that emerged in the late 1970s as part of the British civil rights movement. Her career as a writer, artist and education activist spans over 40 years. She has written numerous publications and resources aimed at promoting good practice with black learners and other minorities, including resources to decolonize and diversify the UK national curriculum in schools and colleges. Stella, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get to the books, we'd like to find out a little more about you. So where are you? Where are you in the world and where are you in your life? Oh, um, that's a big question. Um, where I'm in the world, I'm in London at the moment, um, um, in my home where I've lived for um, a good 40 years now. Um, and I'm actually in my workspace, which is at the top of my house and um, um, a quiet space where I write and do other things. Um, where I am in my life, that's a difficult question. I think it's a question that all of us are pondering at the moment um, with the pandemic and all the other things that are going on right now. Um, it's really hard to say, but um, officially um, I'm retired, although I continue to work quite hard, <laughs> as hard as I ever did. Um I'm busy trying to write and um, do some of the things that I wasn't able to do when I was running around the world, training people and uh, working in education. Amazing. Really glad to hear that you are sat at the top of your house overlooking everything that's going on so far and still continuing to, to fight the good fight. Thank you, Stella. So we would like to start with your book choices. What's the first book that's been your feminist friend today? Okay, um, I think I should preface what I say by um, admitting that all three books are books that I haven't picked up in many years. So, you know, when you ask, ask me that question, I found it quite difficult because, um, you know, you have to think back a long way to, to really remember. And I actually spent some time looking for a book that I didn't include on my list, but it was called something like um, The Liberation of African Women, which was a hugely important text we used to study it I remember um, and it included pieces by women like Justina Michelle and that was really important because it was um, a window into the lives of women who had literally taken up liberation struggles in Africa and were busy trying to decolonize their countries 
Um, so I would say that that was probably one of my most formative texts. But in terms of um, books that I could lay my hands on, Amrit Wilson's Finding a Voice, I chose that because um, I was working um, informally for Virago, the feminist publishers, and I had this amazing job back in the day of um, reading texts that came from America, you know, Toni Morrison, Angela, um, Maya Angelou, um, Alice Walker, people like that, and basically reading them and, 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 and saying whether or not I felt they were worth publishing here. So I had this kind of relationship. I can't remember how I got into it, but at some point they produced, uh, published this book, Finding a Voice by Amrit Wilson, which was um, an attempt to look at the journey of Asian women um, just to contextualise, we're talking about, um, you know, mid-1970s perhaps when um, a lot of uh, Asian sisters were coming from East Africa because of the Africanization policies over there and um, also from the Indian subcontinent. And it was on the back of that book, Success, that Virago suggested to me that we might want to do something similar but focus on the lives of African and African-Caribbean women. So in many ways, that, that book sort of um, began our journey, certainly into writing about our lives and um, was hugely inspirational um, for that very reason. And I think looking back, although I, I can't remember it being a conscious decision, but I think looking back, you know, the way Amrit had approached that book um, by interviewing women and, and, and encouraging them to talk about our lives, that probably influenced how we approached the writing of the heart of the race. It might have been subconscious, but certainly in um, the days we're talking about, oral history was not really up there in lights at all. And um, I can remember when Heart of the Race was published, <laughs> people said, oral history, you know, goodness me, whatever next. Um, not real history at all, but of course, um, I think we've proved that uh, the approach was 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 the right one to take, and the only one to take really, um, because you cannot analyse women's lives without encouraging them to talk about their lives, and for us, it was simply about using those women's voices to provide the basis for an analysis of what was happening to black women at the time. Love that, Stella, and um, love the kind of journey from you reading and being engaged with that book at Virago, which I'm super jealous of. I'm like, when I'm an adult, can I work for a publisher and read books that are going to change people's lives? <laughs> well, it wasn't it wasn't paid work. I can I can assure you, but it was definitely um, I, I felt a privilege to to have access to those books and. Um, just to engage with some of the stuff that was coming out of the States at the time. You know, we're, we're talking about the height of the civil rights movement. We're talking about a period of time when, for many of us, it was the first time we'd actually read anything by a black woman, um, let alone something that spoke so eloquently to our own experience. Um, so, yes, it, it was, it was um, a, a good, good thing to be able to do. Yeah, and it, it sounds like also that progression from both reading and engaging with those books and then including Finding a Voice 
was also part of then you finding a voice with with kind of your comrades and then continuing to support and amplify other voices of black women and of course you know I, I think we look at oral histories and the archiving of women's stories and black women's stories in really different ways now and it's so exciting I mean even in this conversation now we're creating that mini archive together and trying to to share those stories and um yeah thanks to Amrit Wilson for for kind of sowing that seed and for it to kind of connect right back to us here now as, as we sit and hear about you Stella. Mm. And it is connecting back because Amrit's book has been republished recently as well. Um, I think there's a there's a thirst for these texts really, um, and um, it, it's interesting to me how to see how this sort of new generation of young feminists are beginning to engage with that stuff and 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 acknowledge that it's still relevant. Absolutely. When um, when Heart of the Race was republished, I ate it up. It, it literally was mind blowing for me. I, I remember reading it and telling everyone I knew that I didn't know why I hadn't heard these stories before. I didn't understand how I'd made it to my thirties and wasn't engaging with with this properly. And that's part on me. But I mean, those those things feel so relevant. It's great to hear that Finding a Voice is being republished too, because we're still hungry for this. We still we still want to hear all of those stories right now. Yeah, agreed. And this is something that I know we've spoken about a lot, Amelia, as well, about in in an archive, whose voices are amplified within that and whose are accessible. And when you bring those voices into that realm of accessibility, it shows you and teaches you things about yourself or other people that you didn't have access to before or you had to really go looking for it to find. So... I agree with you. I think there is a massive resurgence in people wanting to find those real stories and learning and unlearning and growing that archive and changing how it currently looks. I think it's so important and something we we really want to do now. That's that's why we started this this podcast and and this. And, idea. and what what Amelia just said it resonated with um, something. I remember we did a, a, a launch event. Um, in the mid eighties when the book first came out at the Riverside Studios in Hammersmith. And uh, a black woman in the audience stood up and she was very emotional and she said, I want to thank you for you know, writing this book because it's the first time I've seen the stories that I've heard from my mother and my grandmother uh, around the kitchen table actually um, produced in print. I've never seen that before. Mm. And I think that really does contextualise the book because it was about giving black women a voice. It was about stating how we saw it and that collective we that we use that people always refer to just centred the book in, the, in, in our story. It wasn't about, for the first time really, it wasn't about others speaking on our behalf. Mm. Yeah, that's such a beautiful thought that those oral traditions getting published in print means that it's more solidified in the sense of its accessibility. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Well, they're your words as well, like yeah. what you're saying, Stella, that actually for a long time, 
words have been written about us, about mm-hmm. other people. This is what I see, whether this is, you know, looking back to savagery, whether this is looking back to, you know, oh, let's look at it, like classic kind of um, uh, anthropological stuff. And actually, my life is valid. My words are important. And words, books like Heart of the Race, and I, and I feel from what you're sharing, Finding a Voice, and these kind of tomes are, are telling us, they're centering our own stories. And they're saying that we deserve to share these and you need to listen. <laughs> you need to read them. <laughs> so um, shall we shift on to your second book? What else would you like to tell us about Stella? Um, yeah, I, I chose Julia Subray. As I, said, I haven't read it for a long time, but I remember when it came out, feeling that in, in some way it complemented the heart of the race. Um, you know, it wasn't based on, on oral history in the same way, but it, it really um, tried to look at political activism in the 80s and to um, locate it in a tradition of activism, um, but with an understanding of the many nuances that we were engaging with as Black women, all the different isms and schisms, um, and the recognize, recognition, I suppose, that although we use the term black women as a homogenous phrase that sort of brought everybody in, some people refer to it now as political black, you know, um, the reality was that we had differences, we had unique experiences. And um, again, because Julia Sudbury looks at both African Caribbean and Asian women, she made the connections and pointed out the commonalities without sidestepping, you know, some of the contradictions that lay within that that, that alliance. So I thought it was a beautiful book. And I think um, other kinds of dreams, you know, to give it that title um, resonated with, with how I was feeling at the time when I was reading it, because we were really aspiring to a different kind of world, um, a different experience for women um, freed from some of the sort of patriarchal and chauvinistic um, pressures that we'd we'd grown up with and you know it was about you know opening up horizons and and being able to engage with society in a a different way in a more um, empowered way I'm not sure I can say much more about that. I, I, I read the cover before we before we began the interview, and um, you know, all it says is that it it, it provides invaluable insights into the political activism of Black women, in spite of the immense barriers they face. And um, yeah, you know, when we wrote Heart of the Race, it was received very well, and most people loved it but there were critics there were people who said oh you know this isn't how it really is and I'd always responded at the time and I continue to say to this day you know there's room for lots of narratives there's room for different voices and different perspectives there is no single I'm a historian there's no single version so um, it pleased me to see women like Julia coming out with a book that that kind of augmented um what we'd been saying in the heart of the race and and took it into into 
a different zone. Would you be able to situate for us a little bit more where you were when you picked up this book and how that has resonated with you throughout the throughout the remainder of your your time with it? Yeah, I think I could. I'm just trying to remember when it published. It came out in 1998, late 90s. So, you know, a good 10 years, nearly 15 years on from the heart of the race, Um, which I guess surprised me. I I think I had imagined that there would have been more books like ours coming out in the interim. Um, And quite frankly, a lot of the books that had come out, the few that had, tended to be quite academic, um, which was always something that um, I resisted. Um, um, I believe strongly that if you're going to write, you should write in a way that is accessible and not simply aimed at people who are studying in universities. So where was I in the late 90s? um, Let me sort of rewind for a minute. When The Heart of the Race came out, I was still teaching in schools. In fact, I'd I'd left um, uh, my position as as a teacher of of modern languages and had moved on to teach young offenders. Um, But um, I had a son. um, I was a single parent. And by the late 90s, I was well into my career as, um, I suppose you'd call it a sort of equalities trainer, um, although I hated the term and have never really bought into it. Um, and I was literally traveling around Britain and around the world, um, working with people at both ends of the spectrum, you know, managers of schools and colleges and kids on the street and in classrooms, trying to look at ways to what is now called decolonize the curriculum, but also um, ways to both understand and address institutional racism. Now, um, I don't know whether you're old enough to remember the sort of seismic change that took place when um, the focus on race equality or women's equality as separate issues were all thrown into one big pot and it all became an equalities agenda which I felt kind of watered down the issues because each of those particular areas had their own history, their own um, uh, development and and their own responses. But um, by the late 90s, I think what you were dealing with was that sort of move towards making equality as a kind of homogenous, generic term. So increasingly, I was being asked to address issues in the classroom and and in educational institutions that um, addressed, you know, disabilities, um, gender issues, issues. Sexuality wasn't really coming into it in in, in a big way, in the way that it has in more recent times, but certainly those issues were on the agenda. The other thing that a lot of people don't know about is me, is that in the late 80s, I trained to teach Um, aerobics and fitness you know I I had this idea that a I needed to earn some money b I needed to keep fit so if I was going to do it then I might as well teach and so I was well into my career as as a 
as a as an instructor which i did in the evenings and people used to say how do you do this work you know you go out and you engage with issues of race and people pull this racism and sexism out and you have to process it how do you manage it and I, i'd laugh and say well you know I go into the gym in the evening and I give my my students a hundred press ups. You know, um, that was how I, that was my coping strategy, and it, it proved proved a, a, a good ploy. Um, but it also meant, you know, as any woman will acknowledge, a lot of juggling because as a single parent, if you're working in the evenings and during the day, then there's all kinds of. of uh, challenges around childcare but um yeah that's where I was in the late 90s um and I think you know when uh, Suzanne myself and, and Beverly sat down to do that interview in the republished um, edition of the heart of the race one of the things we were talking about was the legacy of our work um not just OAD but the local women's groups we've been involved in and um the writing of the book itself and I think we all agreed that although OAD itself was relatively short-lived um, and of its time, the women who were involved in that, what is now referred to as the Black Women's Movement, um, took the ideas, the demands, the visions into their lives, into their work, into their careers, into their relationships, into their child rearing. So it became a kind of ethos that we all bought into. It's great to hear out of all of that. I really like to hear the aerobics edition as well. And, but actually, because I think there's something really valid in hearing, you know, that thing about our activist lives, they're real and they're practiced every day. And part of that, you know, you're talking about being a single mum as well and traveling and working. And, and I, as a freelancer, have that thing with, I have fingers in so many pies and all of those different tasting pies all contribute to my kind of academic leanings, my activism and the way I see the world. So I think it's really valuable to hear those different parts of our lives that aren't just the, you know, I sat every day and I wrote these brilliant books, but actually, and, and quite clearly from the work that, that you've been involved with, that your work is a sharing of the incredible practices that you're a part of and even I imagine those women that you were you know practicing aerobics with and you, you know those stories are kind of colliding and 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 coming together and yeah I think sometimes we're kind of we don't share those other bits of ourselves like I learned so much just being in like when I worked in all the bars that I've worked at in Harvey Nichols when like learning I mean you learn a lot about class when you work in Harvey Nichols and that, and and so I, it all kind of contributes to that to our our kind of learning styles and the way that we see things and I kind of just want to applaud us being a bit more um transparent around those parts of our lives too yeah and I was teaching predominantly in Tottenham you know um, uh, both as a teacher when I moved on to work in, in in Tottenham College or at least up the road in this unit that they'd set up for anyone black disabled or female who didn't fit the sort of male tech college stereotype landed on our doorstep and we did some really subversive work in the margins you know the first crash in FE um, we worked um with unemployed women we called it the houseworkers course because we didn't like the term house housewives and <laughs> um you know it, it was it was um an extension of that really going on to teach fitness to those women 
And to me, that was as important a gift to those women as anything I might have taught them about sexism or racism. It was a life skill. It was a life line for some of them. And embodied work as well, you know, that we can talk about this and we can write about it, but also we can feel and move through it. And mm-hmm. I, I imagine that the the connection that you bring to that kind of stuff, Stella, is is pretty exciting because yeah I I think sometimes it can be all a bit too sat behind a laptop and in the classroom but it goes further. Could you please share your final book choice with us? Arthur Sky I'll hold it up for you it's um a really really powerful piece of writing again based on individual experiences um of women in Africa in Asia um, you know, from Cambodia to, you know, wherever, um, Ethiopia. Um, and it looks at the experiences of women, but through the lens of war, conflict, disease, trafficking, poverty, migration, you know, that whole long list of things that, to me, are as central to the struggle of black women today as they ever were. And um, I chose that book deliberately because I've always been a champion of linking our stories and our struggles with what's going on elsewhere in the world. I think it's far too easy to just gaze at your own navel. Um, And it is really, really important to me that feminists, whoever they are, but particularly black feminists, make that connection and continue to understand what we refer to as political black or what is referred to as political black. In other words, the sense that all those who have known or historically experienced racism and imperialism and colonialism and enslavement um, continue to share a, a, a common struggle and a common goal, which is to free our world up from all these horrors. Um, I don't know about you, but I can barely turn the television on at the moment because what's going on in Afghanistan, in Haiti, um, anywhere you care to mention, really, is just almost unbearable. It was not the world that feminists of my age envisaged. And, you know, even yourselves, you can probably think back to two, three years ago when you just could not have imagined the impact of this pandemic, let alone Brexit and all the other things that we could throw into the mix. So, it's it we're we're standing in a, in a really defining moment i think and as a woman who has always had hope for a better world and for a better future um it seems to me that it's never been more important that young people like yourselves engage with these issues but as I say, make the links. You know, we've all been through that Black Lives Matter moment, haven't we, where um, the murder of George Floyd and others um, in America, Breonna Taylor was one of them, um, 
has focused our attention on police brutality uh, or refocused our attention on police brutality because it's always been there. But one of my issues with BLM is that Black Lives Matter, wherever they are, and um, while I'm in no way wanting to diminish the horror of having someone kneel on your neck until you can no longer breathe, I am equally concerned that there are children around the world who are dying of preventable diseases or women who are being trafficked and sent on journeys that are not dissimilar to the journey I describe in my latest book, A Kick in the Belly, which looks at women and slavery. So, yeah, I'm, I'm getting up on a soapbox. I'm, I'm sorry, but I think it's, it's, it's a real passion of mine to remind um, people that um, our struggles are global. They're intertwined. And um, sometimes those of us who live in what we call the West, the global North, <laughs> um, we get focused on my new tie and we forget the bigger picture and I'm going to leave it at that I've said my piece but that's why that book I think is, is a must read um, I could incidentally and I did struggle with your question because as I said to you in my email, you know, I'm a prolific reader and three books. I mean, hey, where do you start? There's so many that I could have mentioned. And I, I really did want to include in that list um, some, a work of fiction, because I do believe that fiction can be as a powerful a route into these issues as, as anything academic or analytical. Um, and I, I wanted to put Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, or um, um, what's her name? Bulawayo's book that I read recently, We Need New Names. You know, there's so much powerful literature coming out. Marlon James's book of night, The Book of Night Women, you know, which proves, makes my case that men can actually stand in the shoes of women and envisage what it must be like to be an enslaved woman. If that book doesn't prove my point, I don't think anything does. What a powerful piece of writing. So um, my feminism has always looked for allyship. It has always looked to focus on the commonalities we share rather than the differences that divide us. And um, as I say, I think for those who genuinely say, I can't understand what you feel because I don't stand in your shoes, reading literature is a really powerful way of overcoming that impediment um, because it allows you to get under the skin and into the heads of those whose lives um, are described. So, yes, that's that's my my beef with just three books. Maybe you should have said at least one of them should be a work of literature, but you didn't mm -hmm. want to be too, too, too prescriptive. I do understand that. Thank you for reminding us of a, a transnational global solidarity and for 
being able to find your own positionality within the struggle, but also remember how these things connect. And I don't want to say not get caught up, but just keep widening your perspective, you know, keep looking beyond simply where you are, but understanding how all of these oppressions interlink and how we can, for me, it is about how we find the space to come together. And I, I feel like you've really been sharing that, that journey around the, the myriad pieces of work that you've done, the places that you've been, and the way that that's kind of sat in your body as an activist, that isn't just about your own experience, but is about uh, connecting with other people, actually. And this is also something we've talked about on the podcast about trying to uh, let go of it only being some bodies that feel this way, but us opening up the, the space to uh, for us all to engage with uh, truly feminist acts. Um, so the ne next feminist act I'm gonna ask you to engage with is tell us what your music picks are. <laughs> what music well, makes you feel you know, feminist? I, I've got the same beef there, you know, how do you start? Um, I have very eclectic tastes in music, but um, I started with Judy Moat's Black Woman because we played that track to death at the first Black Women's Conference in Brixton in, I think it was 79. Um, it was like there was no other tune. And um, it so spoke to our sense of who we were at the time and the empowerment we felt as women hearing another woman sing to us about our story. Um, I've always been um, a lover of reggae. Um, another thing people don't know about me is that I followed Shaka sound systems you know, <laughs> from when I was uh, in my late teens, early 20s. And even to this day, I'm known to sort of crawl out of the house at 11 o'clock at night and go and stand up by a big bass speaker. I have to watch it now because my ears have uh, started to ring alarmingly. And... Uh, um, I, I guess uh, tinnitus is, is the, uh, the price you pay. But, um, yeah, I've always loved reggae and I love it not simply because it, 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 uh, it makes me want to dance and sing, but because up until very recently, anyway, reggae was a very, very political, um, um, what's the word? Just it was political, you know, and. Um, everything from Bob Marley to Peter Tosh to anyone you could name, really. They were talking about real lives, about poverty, about um, um, colonialism and slavery and all of those things that have interested me in my life. And like fiction, really, I think music can be really powerful um, as, a, as a way of sort of engaging people and making them want to find out more so um, that's why I chose that track I thought that would be um, the most apt of all the many tracks that I could have named um, the second one I think I said sweet honey in the rock is that right let there be peace um, I could have chosen any of their tunes they're such a powerful um talented group of women um and they continue to perform to this day as far as i know you know even even uh, uh, now they're 40 50 years 
older than they were when they started. Pure a cappella. And again, um, speaking directly to our experiences as black women. But I chose Let There Be Peace because, yeah, because of the moment we find ourselves in, I think. I, I just thought, you know, of all the things I could have pulled out, Fanny Lou Hamer was one that we used to love. Um, you know, so many of their tracks that, 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 that say resonated, but Let There Be Peace um, speaks to a real, um, you know, primal scream inside me at the moment. Um, all these men strutting around with guns. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just men, but, um, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I had hoped by the time I reached my 70s, which I'm just about to embark on, that we'd be living in a in a different kind of world. And um, I guess that's probably true of women you could pull out of any century, you know, um, whether we're talking about suffragettes, whether we're talking about the women who fought and resisted enslavement or, um, you know, women who worked in the mills in the northern towns of Lancashire. I'm sure that every single generation of women have wished for better things for their children and their grandchildren. But it does seem to me that there's a kind of confluence going on at the moment with all these things, global warming, pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'm really heartened, as I say, that there are young people like yourselves who are not just overwhelmed by it all, <laughs> wanting to duvet dive, because I think it would be very easy to just take the line that I've heard people come out with recently and it's it's um, a sad thing to hear but people say I just can't deal with it I don't want to watch the news anymore I don't want to know you know which is another response and one that we have to acknowledge that it's 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 tough out there it's tough yeah it can all get so overwhelming like you said but Amelia and I were actually listening to your your song choices ahead of interviewing you and we we were dancing and we were getting so oh, immersed and we just good. hearing your explanation as to why you picked them as well it makes it makes me even more poignant not only what the songs mean but also what they mean to you and now that's been shared with us and I feel like that is at the center of what we're trying to do by not trying to get overwhelmed like you said share these mm -hmm. stories share this music and this is a great segue into sharing the final part of your feminist archive, your object, Stella. What have you chosen? Well, I'm wearing it. I'm wearing it. I always do. Um, I had these earrings made in Ghana years ago. Um, I found a little cheap one and I loved it so much that I went to a goldsmith. And, you know, Ghana, I come, my father's from Ghana. I went to a goldsmith and said, could you make me this in gold? And he said, sure. And uh, back in the day, gold wasn't so expensive, so I could actually afford them. Um, so uh, I love this because it is based on one of the Ghanaian Adinkra symbols and literally it means twistings, but it actually translates as versatility, initiative, dynamism. And um, I think those those are qualities that should inform our lives, you know, 
certainly I've hoped to um, have them inform mine. And um, it goes with my need to have something from Africa on my person, wherever I am and wherever I go. Um, not because I need reminding who I am, but simply because it is part of what comforts me and what strengthens me and what basically makes me the person I've become. Because although we haven't talked about it, I am the product of, um, you know, an interracial relationship. My father's Ghanaian, my mum was English. Um, I've had to negotiate that interface all my life. Um, and it's again, it's only recently that issues of, of mixed race or mixed heritage have really um, been put on the table. And I think I was fortunate in that, you know, I traveled to Ghana from quite a young age. So I had a kind of grounding and a sense of self that even when it was challenged and people said, you're not really black or you're not really African and all those things that uh, people face um, in my shoes, I think, you know, I, I always knew who I was. I never had any problem knowing that I was both and understanding that having said that, um, you know, no skinhead was going to knock, tap my shoulder and say, excuse me, is your mum white before he stuck the boot in? So I've never had any ambiguities around who I am. Um, and I hope to bring up my grandson um, with that same sense of positivity, um, although he would have to count his, his heritage on the fingers of two hands, you know. <laughs> Stella, um... You've brought us great positivity. You've really given us a lot of hope in this conversation today. And you just reminded me of a, a poem that I was looking at this week, uh, a Langston Hughes poem that is, um, sometimes when I'm lonely, don't know why, keep thinking I won't be lonely by and by. And this conversation today has made me feel that I, us, we, as the wider collective don't need to be lonely we can keep listening and connecting with one another and show solidarity and find ways to show up in a way that is about us looking forward. There is a way through. We are in this together. So amen for your hope and, and your joy that you've brought for us today, Stella. And we, we share something else, Amelia, and that's a love of Langston Hughes. I'll give you another one. It's, it's one that I love. Birthing is hard and dying is mean. So get yourself a little loving in between. I love that. Isn't it, Jess? Yeah. Um, it is about love, not just of self, but of humanity. And um, I think little poems like that can just, just remind us where it's at. Oh, man, we got poetry in today and everything. I'm <laughs> loving this. <laughs> this is dreamy. Oh, yeah, thank you for... for helping us create this this loving community here uh, it's been a really special conversation with you today Stella thank you thank you so much and thank you everybody for listening to the F Less Travelled 
Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. And most importantly, get in touch and tweet us at F underscore travelled with your books, songs and feminist objects. Let's reimagine the archive together. Hashtag this is my canon. You can find additional details and transcript links in our show notes. And for more information, you can find us online at gold.ac.uk forward slash Centre for Feminist Research. With huge thanks to the Centre for Feminist Research for all their support, as well as the Centre for Urban and Community Research and Methods Lab, all based at Goldsmiths College, University of London. Thank you to Kat Davies Herbs for our artwork and Rory Patterson-Ackenbach for sound production. With feminist love, Amelia and Sabrina.